You can turn to 1 Kings 19. That's where we'll be this morning, 1 Kings 19, as we continue our series on face-to-face encounters with God by looking at the prophet Elijah. Now, it's probably no surprise to you who know me that, to know, to find out, that in junior high and high school, um, I competed in the science fair. So that was my thing. Um, I figured out pretty quickly that football, basketball, soccer, music, none of those were going to be a win for me. And I needed a win in my early life. I needed something to, to bring a little bit of popularity in high school to make the boys quit harassing me, to maybe make a girl want to go out with me. And so I looked for something I could win, and I found Science Fair. And, and so I made it my goal in junior high and high school to win the International Science Fair, this national competition for best science fair project. Now, some of you are saying you really thought a girl would go out with you. Yes, I really did. I, <laughs> I had more scientific intelligence at that point in my life than relational intelligence. So I set it as my goal to go win National Science Fair, and, and I worked for months on, on projects, year after year, and I would take them, and I, I'd win at my school, and then I'd take them to Houston to the, to the city competition, and I would always do well, but I would never make it to state. I would never make it to nationals. There would always be some kid who would discover some new theorem in mathematics, and you can't compete with that. So, so I kept losing year after year, but I kept working harder and harder and getting better and better until my junior year in high school, I invented this safety device for aircraft. I tested it actually here at A&M, and I put together this science fair project, and I won in Houston, and I won at state, and I took it to nationals, and I won third place, and it was like the biggest victory of my whole young life. I was just thrilled, so incredibly excited. I couldn't wait to get back to high school and see what dividends that would win me with the boys and with the girls. I was sure that this would be the great crowning achievement of my young life, but I got back, and it didn't quite work out that way. The principal announced over the loudspeaker that I had won the science fair, and no one really cared. None of the boys lined up to give me a high five. None of the girls started making eyes at me. In fact, I found that my great victory did not change anything for me at high school. Everything was exactly the same as before I had put in all of that effort, and that made me feel really discouraged really depressed that I had worked so hard and it changed nothing and I wondered why am I trying so hard in life now I think that's probably a feeling that every single one of us in this room has had at some point in life you have worked incredibly hard to accomplish something good and you did it you accomplished something great something incredible and yet it did not change anything it didn't have the results that you expected. You thought it would bring great things into your life, and it didn't. You, you worked incredibly hard in class, and yet you still failed your test. Or, or you lost your job despite incredible Herculean effort at work. Or your business went under despite all the sacrifice that you made. Or you have a relationship that bombed even though you had great hopes for it. For, for a lot of you ladies out there, you felt that discouragement, that depression, When you brought a child into the world, the statistics are actually incredible. 80% of women suffer postpartum blues when they have a child. That's a prolonged period of sadness, a feeling of discouragement. For about 10 to 20% of women, it becomes actual clinical depression. Because you've given yourself, you've literally given your body, your blood, your bones to this child. You've given everything to this baby. You have this great victory. You bring this new life into the world and then you're hit with depression. It's not the hallmark moment you were expecting. 
Depression and, and childbirth often go hand in hand. That doesn't end when the baby comes into the world. Parenting and depression often go hand in hand. Because we, we parents, we pour into our children. We give them our time. We teach them. We train them. We pray for them. We cry for them. We weep for them. We work so hard investing in their lives. And then we wake up the next morning and notice they are still just as selfish and just as whiny and just as disobedient as they were the day before. Parenting goes hand in hand with depression and despair. So many of us have, have felt that discouragement in life, that you work so hard to accomplish something good and the results don't pan out, and it just overwhelms you. You feel discouraged, you feel depressed, you feel despair. Some of you are right there this morning. Well, there's a lot of passages that we could look at in Scripture that speak to this issue of of what do you do when you feel despair in life, when you feel overwhelmed by depression or discouragement. But I want to take you to one of my favorites, 1 Kings 19, to the story of how God interacted in the life of Elijah, his prophet, when Elijah was just overcome by fear, despair, and depression. We're going to look at 1 Kings 19, but first I need to introduce you to this man, to Elijah. Let me give you a little background on his life. Elijah was a 9th century BC prophet to the nation of Israel. This is the time of history where the kingdom is divided. So you have Judah in the south and you have Israel in the north. And of the two of them, Israel was the one that went into sin first. They fell into idolatry really quickly after the kingdom divided. They worshipped the Baals. That was the big sin of the nation of Israel. They worshipped this other god, Baal. And at this time in the 9th century BC, when we meet Elijah, they are led by an incredibly wicked king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel don't just worship the Baals, they actually pay hundreds of prophets or priests of Baal to lead the nation in this idolatrous worship. They are so evil, in fact, that God chooses to raise up a new kind of prophet, a prophet who had power, a prophet who could rival and challenge the king, a prophet who could work great miracles, a prophet who could command armies of angels. That new kind of prophet is Elijah, the first prophet like him who carried authority and power to do miraculous things. We meet Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He bursts on the scene out of nowhere. Ahab has led the nation into idolatry. Elijah comes up and and his goal, the whole orientation of his ministry is dedicated to fighting the worship of Baal. He bursts on the scene and renders judgment on Ahab. This is Ahab. Because you have led the nation in this idolatrous worship, God is bringing a drought on your nation. You get no rain. Crops are going to dry up. There's going to be drought, famine all through the land until I say otherwise. Well, that's a big claim. Elijah's saying, you get no rain until I say otherwise. You better wise up, bro. And so for three years, there's no rain. And the crops fail and drought sets in and everybody is just shocked at Elijah's incredible power. And after three years of this drought that God sent as judgment, finally the people are ready for a climactic showdown between the God of Elijah, that's Yahweh, the God of your Bible, and the gods of Ahab, the Baals. And so that big, that big climactic battle, many of you know the story, it's 1 Kings 18, I'll just take you through the details, God, or Elijah summons all of Israel to come to Mount Carmel. 
for this big competition, this big showdown between Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the Baals. And so Elijah has two altars built, one to each God, one to Yahweh, one to Baal. And whosoever God can light their altar first will be the one true God of the nation of Israel. And so Elijah, he lets the, the priests of Baal go first. So the priests of Baal, they, there's hundreds of them, they dance around the altar to Baal and they pray and they bow and they sing and they chant and they cut themselves, anything they can do to get Baal to wake up and light his altar, but he never does. And so now it's Elijah's turn and he steps up to the altar of Yahweh, but, but he's not going to make this easy on Yahweh, is he? No, no he takes water. And he drenches the altar, bucket after bucket, just totally soaks the altar. And then he doesn't cry, doesn't chant, he doesn't cut himself. He just bows his head and prays. Yahweh, Lord, please light your your altar so everyone will know that you are God. And boom, fire falls from heaven. It does not just light the altar. It consumes the sacrifice, burns the wood, vaporizes the stones. It's all gone. It terrifies everyone. All the Israelites fall on their face and worship. They proclaim Yahweh, the Lord. He is God. Huge victory. So this is, if you want a picture, what would this look like today? Mount Carmel, huge, big mountain that overlooked everything. was kind of the center of the nation. So it would be like Elijah has rented Kyle Field. And he has invited all of us. Everyone shows up. It is absolutely packed for this one final climactic battle between Elijah and his enemies, and he wins. Clearly, everybody sees it. It's a totally lopsided victory. Everyone knows the Lord is God. Elijah is so thrilled. He is so excited about this incredible victory that he hikes up his robe and he runs miles and miles to the palace in Jezreel. Because he's expecting that now Ahab and Jezebel, they're either going to repent and worship God or the nation's going to kick him out. Elijah is ready for the revolution. So incredible victory in 1 Kings 18. Could not have gone better. And then 1 Kings 19. Everything falls apart. Absolutely huge letdown. There is no revolution. Look with me, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab, that is the king, told Jezebel, his wife, the queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. There's no revolution. There's no repentance. There's not even a few protesters holding signs in front of the palace. There's nothing. Nothing has changed. Despite all of Elijah's work, despite his huge victory, the capital city is still ruled by an idolatrous king and his idolatrous wife, and everyone is following them. In fact, the only thing that had changed for Elijah is now there's a price on his head. Jezebel is threatening in his life, and, and Elijah knows this is not, no empty threat. This is a powerful woman. She can fulfill this threat and take his life, and so Elijah runs. He runs away. Look at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Let me show you what what this journey looks like. Here is Israel and Judah. It begins in Mount Carmel, far to the north. His huge victory, Kyle Field, everything goes great. It's so great that he runs all the way to Jezreel, the capital city. Then everything falls apart. 
there's a, a warrant put out on his life. He's going to be put to death. And so he runs south all the way through the nation of Israel, all the way through the nation of Judah to the town of Beersheba, far to the south. He leaves his servant there, hikes 15 miles into the desert, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 8. So he arose, this is in the desert south of Beersheba, and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He keeps going south all the way to the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula, as far south as you can go into the desert. There is no one for hundreds of miles around. Elijah runs away. He runs from the queen. He runs from Jezebel. So why? Why did Elijah run? What's going on in his mind that leads him on this journey? Well, first, he was afraid. It says in verse 3 that he ran for his life. He's afraid that he's going to be killed, but I think there's something even bigger than fear going on here. Because actually, when you look at the records through chapter 17 and through chapter 18, his life was threatened many times. So why this time? When his life is threatened for like the 20th time, why does he run this time? Well, because he's not just afraid. There's something bigger going on. I think he's depressed. I think Elijah is despairing of life. I think he is overwhelmed by discouragement, and it just levels him. You see that in a couple verses. Notice verse 3, it tells us that he left his servant there. Why would you do that? Why would you leave your servant behind? The servant, it's not because Elijah is rich. This is his servant who helps him fulfill his ministry. Prophets needed servants to deliver their messages and to help them communicate. He's leaving his servant behind. Why? Because he's quitting. That's what that's about. He's quitting. He's giving up. I'm done being a prophet. I'm done with this ministry. Did not work out like I thought. I quit. So in verse 3, he quits. And then in verse 4, he sits down under a tree and he laments. He says, I am no better than my father's. What is he saying? Well, I am no more effective as a prophet than any of my predecessors who couldn't turn Israel from their idolatry. They couldn't accomplish anything. Neither could I. I think what Elijah is saying is it's pointless to keep trying. My life, my job, my ministry, they're worthless. I am worthless. I can't accomplish anything. Just let me die. I think Elijah is absolutely overwhelmed by despair, by discouragement, and by depression. That's why he runs. And that forces us to ask, when Elijah felt this fear and this depression and he, and he runs, he quits his prophetic ministry and he runs off into the desert, was he sinning? Is this sin in Elijah's life in, in chapter 19 when he gets afraid and de- depressed and runs away? Well, a lot of commentators would say yes. That Elijah is rebelling against God's calling on his life to be a prophet to Israel. But I don't think it's that simple. I, I don't think that this is sin because first of all, there's no blatant rebellion here. God did not tell him to stay in Jezreel. God did not tell him, don't go south. When God shows up later in the chapter, God doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't condemn him. And, and here's the most important thing if you want to understand what Elijah is doing. You've got to pay attention to the geography. Where does he run? Mount Horeb. What is the other name of Mount Horeb? Mount Sinai. Same mountain. Probably the same cave that he runs into that Moses was in when God revealed himself. Elijah is not running away from God. He's not pulling a Jonah here. No, he's running towards God. He's running to the mountain of God, the place on earth that Israel held as the most holy place, the place where God could most clearly be felt, could most clearly be encountered. 
I think that's really significant. I don't think Elijah is sinning here. I think that when he's overwhelmed by fear and depression, he is teaching us a lesson. You're gonna run somewhere. When life gets hard, when it overwhelms you, when you are afraid and depressed, you're gonna run somewhere to, to find help. You can either run to the world to find relief in, in its pleasures and its distractions, its pursuits, its idols, or you can run to God, and that's what Elijah does. He runs to God for help. And God shows up. That's the rest of the chapter. God shows up and and gives to his prophet, to Elijah, three gifts that help to deliver Elijah from despair. Three gifts that set him free from his fear and his depression. So we're going to look at these three gifts. Now, I need to be clear real quick. I need to make this absolutely clear. If you are struggling with depression or anxiety or despair, you need to understand these three gifts that God gives to Elijah, they are not a magic cure for depression or anxiety. These aren't some magic bullet, do these three things and you will be fixed. It doesn't work like that. We're all unique. Our, our path growing through despair or anxiety or depression, it will look unique for each of us. But what I can tell you is that whatever God takes you through, these three gifts will be part of your recovery and growth. You may need other things as well, but you will for sure need these three gifts from God to make it through times of despair, fear, and depression well. I'm going to walk you through these three gifts that God gives to Elijah. In summary form, God is going to give Elijah rest. He's going to give Elijah a reminder that God is at work even when you don't see it. And he's going to give Elijah renewed focus in life. So rest, a reminder, and renewed focus. So let's look at the first of those. God is going to give Elijah rest. Look with me starting in verse 5. He, Elijah, lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. It's interesting, when God arrives, uh, guised as the angel of the Lord, that's often how God shows up in Scripture, um, when God arrives, you notice the first thing he does. He, he does not rebuke Elijah. He does not teach Elijah. He doesn't sit next to Elijah and say, hey, do you want to talk about it? No, none of that. first thing that God does when he shows up is he cooks. He cooks. He cooks a hot meal for Elijah, lets him eat, and then tells him to go back to sleep. Why? Because God had been watching. He knew what Elijah had been doing for three years, running from the king, serving the Lord, then expended incredible energy in this great victory in 1 Kings 18, and then was, ran all the way to Jezreel in excitement, then ran all the way to Sinai in fear. God understood Elijah was exhausted. The man is tanked. What he needs most in life at that moment is a hot meal and a good night of sleep. You know, there's a lot of Christians who assume that every problem in life can be fixed by reading the Bible and praying more. If you're feeling depressed, read the Bible and pray more. If you're having a hard time battling sin, read the Bible and pray more. If you're fighting with your spouse, read the Bible and pray more. Well, it is always good to read the Bible and pray more, but we need to understand sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat a good meal and get to bed early. 
Sometimes that is what you really need in life. What God is teaching us in this encounter with Elijah is that our physical needs are not unimportant to God. He created us. He made your physical body. He united it inseparably to your spirit. He understands that body and spirit work together. They are interrelated. Often spiritual problems have physical causes and physical problems have spiritual causes. You cannot neglect your physical body and not end up paying a spiritual price. So sometimes the most holy thing you can do is eat a good meal and get a good night of sleep. That's what Elijah needed. He had absolutely expended all of his energy. He was completely tanked, so God shows up and cooks him a meal and puts him to bed. And sure enough, after feeding him and letting him sleep twice, then Elijah will be ready to hear the word of the Lord. First, God takes care of his physical needs. How do we apply that to ourselves? Well, very simply, if you find yourself overwhelmed by discouragement or disillusionment or despair, if it's getting harder and harder to resist sin, if you find yourself more and more likely to jump to anger or sadness, you find yourself getting overwhelmed in life, it could be that what you really need first and foremost is some rest. That's the primary solution that you need to start with is rest. So just to get very practical, it may be that you need to go get a physical You need to go to a doctor, get some blood work done, get some tests done, and find out, is your body working properly? Do you need medicine? Do you need some medical treatments before you're going to get better? Some of you need to go get a physical as part of your healing process. For others of us, we need to check our diet and get some exercise. The scientific evidence is, is absolutely clear. Diet and exercise affect your mood, your energy level, and your mental focus. They affect your ability to walk with the Lord and honor Him. You cannot neglect your diet and exercise and not expect it to have a significant effect on your spiritual maturity. Some of you, you need to get rest. You need to get more sleep. I have had innumerable conversations with college students, particularly their freshman and sophomore year. They'll come talk to me about how they just cannot seem to win against this sin or they can't seem to overcome anxiety or depression. And then they, they, they tell me what, what is going on in their lives. I, I walk them through their schedule and they're taking a full load of classes and they're working a job on the side and they're in a Bible study every night of the week and they're maybe getting five hours of sleep if they're lucky. No, you, you cannot do that. Sleep is not optional. You cannot walk with the Lord. You cannot battle sin. You cannot resist depression, despair, and fear if you are not getting proper sleep. What they don't understand is that they are writing checks that their bodies cannot cash. They are never going to find their way out of despair and discouragement until they simplify their lives and get some better sleep at night. You may need to get sleep. Finally, you may need to take a vacation. It's interesting, I had a great conversation with a guy this week. We were just talking to each other about vacations, about how we need vacations. It's, he, he had this great observation. He said, you know, back in, in, in earlier days, before like the last couple hundred years, everyone worked the land. That's what we were. We, we were agrarian. We worked the land. And it's interesting when you look at how farmers' schedules work over the course of the year. They are intensely busy sometimes planting, harvesting seasons. They're just working all the time. But then you have these periods between planting and harvest and planting again where there's very little to do. You know, just some maintenance around the farm, getting things ready, but they get a lot of rest. 
They got a lot of refreshment because that's how God designed the human body to work. You gotta have periods where you're not working. You gotta have time away. You gotta have rest because that's how God made you to operate. So it may be that if you find yourself overwhelmed by fear and depression and despair, that the most godly thing you can do is rest. That's the first gift that God gives to Elijah. Second gift that God gives to Elijah is a reminder. God reminds him that he's at work, even if Elijah can't see it. Look with me starting in verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, that's at Sinai, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elijah the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint as prophet in your place." It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so God begins with a question, Elijah gives an answer, we'll look at that in a minute. And then God gives Elijah an object lesson. He says, go out to the mountain, and I'm going to pass by. So the first thing that comes, a huge hurricane, just how God showed up to Job, we looked at that last week, a massive hurricane, but God's not in the hurricane. And then an earthquake, earthquake shakes the mountain, just like God revealed himself to the nation of Israel, but God's not in the earthquake. And then a fire comes down, just like God revealed himself to Moses, but God's not in the fire. And then a gentle blowing, literally a a quiet whisper, and God is in the whisper. Now why? What is God trying to teach Elijah by not appearing in all these other ways, but appearing in the whisper? Well, to answer that question, you've got to understand what's going through Elijah's mind. You've got to understand the, the mental mistakes that he is making. So some errors in Elijah's thinking. Where had Elijah gone wrong? Well, look at what he says in answer to the Lord's question. He's going to say it twice, verse 10 and verse 14, very same things. Look at verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. There's a couple points that Elijah's making. The first is there at the beginning, I have been very zealous. I've been zealous, God. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I did it all. I did it right. I did it well. And yet, where are the results? Elijah's first problem is that he is expecting instant results. God, I've been zealous for you and nothing has changed. I did A, B, and C. You are supposed to do X, Y, and Z right now. What's going on, God? He expected instant results. When those results didn't materialize instantly, 
It left him in despair. Second mistake he makes is towards the end. I alone am left. I alone am left. There's no one God. There's no one who serves you. There's no one who does what's right. All of the fate of Israel rests on my shoulders. I have to fix this nation or it's never gonna be fixed. In other words, the second mistake that Elijah makes is he overestimates his importance to God's plan. He looks around and doesn't see anyone else serving the Lord, so it must come all down to me. I either fix this nation or it's never gonna get fixed. And we actually make those same mistakes all the time ourselves. I find in my own life, that's, that's often how I err in my thinking. I expect instant results. I, I expect that if I sacrificially love my spouse today, my marriage will be better tomorrow. I expect that if I discipline and train and teach my kids today, my kids will be more mature tomorrow. We do this all the time. You expect that if I share the gospel with my sister today, she will accept Christ tomorrow. If I'm nice to my mean coworker today, he will be a better person tomorrow. We expect instant results in life, and when those results don't materialize, it leaves us feeling discouraged and depressed. So we make that mistake. We make a second mistake also. We overestimate our importance to God's plan. We assume that, wow, when when you really get down to the end of the day, it all depends on me. Doing my job, carrying my burdens, taking care of my family, it all depends on me. Either I fix problems in life, either I step up and control things and manage things and supervise things, or they're not gonna work out and everything is gonna fall apart for me and my family. We do that all the time. We overestimate our importance. We put the burdens of the world on our shoulders and try to carry them. I promise you, anyone who's trying to carry the burdens of the world on their shoulder, they are going to be an easy target for anxiety and depression. So we make the same mistakes Elijah did. So let's look at God's solution, what God is saying to Elijah. What is God trying to teach Elijah by showing up in the whisper? Well, here's what's going on. The first three things, the hurricane, the earthquake, and the fire. Those are big. Those are flashy. Those have instantaneous results. The wind is breaking the rocks right in front of Elijah. You cannot miss, you cannot ignore the hurricane, the earthquake, and the fire. God's not in any of those. Not this time. No, God's in a whisper. Whisper is totally different. A whisper, you can ignore that. You, you don't even see that. It's invisible. You can hardly hear it. You don't know what's going on in the whisper. The whisper is so quiet, it's so easy to ignore, easy to miss, and yet God says at the end of the passage, his whisper has raised up 7,000 faithful Israelites that Elijah didn't even know about. Elijah, all of his great, miraculous, amazing ministry had raised up a sum total of zero converts. God's quiet, gentle, invisible whisper that no one knew anything about had raised up 7,000 faithful Israelites that Elijah knew nothing about. The point, what God is trying to teach to Elijah and teach to us is that God's quiet, invisible whisper can accomplish more than we could ever imagine. His quiet whisper, which you do not see, you cannot watch, you do not notice, it is accomplishing more behind the scenes of your life than all of your furious effort and great strivings will ever accomplish. God's whisper can accomplish more than we could ever imagine. That's what he's trying to teach Elijah. That that message is meant to humble Elijah. God is saying, Elijah, I don't need you. I don't need your work. You're not indispensable to my plan. All of your great effort, I did more through a quiet whisper. 
I do not need you. He's humbling Elijah, but he's also encouraging Elijah. Elijah, you think that nothing has been getting better. That's because you can't see it yet. I've been working behind and through your life in ways you don't know anything about. There's 7,000 already ready to worship me and lead the revolution that you're looking for. How do we apply this to our lives? Well, let me say a lot of people take this passage and they try to apply it by saying you need to go off into the woods and listen for the whisper of God in your life. I, I don't think that's accurate. This is Elijah. This isn't me. He was a prophet. I'm not. So this isn't a promise. Go sit in nature and you'll hear the whisper of God. The application for us of this passage, what God is trying to teach us in this passage, is that we need to choose to believe that he is at work all around us even if we don't see it. This is a matter of faith. That's what the whisper is all about. The hurricane, the earthquake, the fire, the whisper, it's all about building faith. You must choose to believe that God is at work in your life, through your life, around your life, even if you can't see it, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't see any of the fruit. You gotta take it on faith. Gotta believe that God is at work in your marriage, even if you don't see the fruit of that work yet. You gotta believe that God is at work in your kids even if you don't see any growth yet. You gotta believe that God is at work in your relatives, in your coworkers, in your classmates even if you don't yet see any change. You just gotta take it on faith. That God is at work. He is whispering in their lives in ways that you can't see, that you don't know and his whisper is more powerful than all of your strivings. It can accomplish more than humanity will ever accomplish. So we've got to take it on faith that God is at work in our lives, in our families, in our community, even when we can't see it. That's the second gift that God gives Elijah to deliver from him from his despair. God reminds him that even though he doesn't see it, God is powerfully and invincibly at work in the world. Third and final gift that God gives to Elijah as Elijah struggles through this period of despair, God gives him the gift of renewed focus in life. Last gift that God gives to Elijah. He gives him the gift of simplicity. See, Elijah had let his life get really complicated. Life is gonna be complicated if you think that the weight of the world rests on your shoulders. Well, you got a lot to do. A lot of work to do if you gotta fix everything. So Elijah felt like his life was complicated and heavy. God was reminding him, no, I'm the one who will fix the nation. I just want you to do one thing. God gives him the gift of simplicity. We've already read it there. God gives him just one job to do. Elijah, go raise up three new leaders. Three new leaders for your nation, Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha. Now, interestingly, Elisha, the third one, is the most important. It will be Elisha who will raise up the other two. So in, in reality, Elijah only had to do one thing for the rest of his life, one thing, find and train his successor. Man, Elisha. That's all he had to do. God gave him the gift of simplifying his life. You do not have to fix this nation. You do not have to stamp out idolatry. You do not have to do all of these complex things. Just do one thing. Let me talk to you about how you apply this to your life. I think that part of the reason that we, as a society, as, as a community, part of the reason that we so often struggle with anxiety and despair and depression is because we have chosen to live such complicated lives, made life really complicated. 
We've filled it with innumerable activities and responsibilities and pursuits and distractions. So many things in our lives, many, most of which are good things, but you add them all together and they leave you no time for the rest that you need to be healthy and for the time with God that you need to be reminded that he is work, that he is at work in your life. We, we fill our lives with so much complication that we make ourselves easy targets for despair and anxiety. And so when you feel yourself overwhelmed, one of the things that you probably need to do is simplify. You need to look at your life and you need to figure out, praying with God, asking for his wisdom, you need to figure out what are the few things that really matter in my life. Few things that I really need to focus on. Let me drop all the rest and focus on this. Now I can give you the first item on your list. The first item on all of our list is our relationship with God. That comes first. Our creator, the king of heaven and earth, our father has decided to have a relationship with you now and in the next life. And and you enter into that relationship, you become a child of God. He becomes your father the moment that you believe that God loves you so much he sent his own son Jesus to die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could become his child. You don't earn your way into the family of God. You don't work for it. It's a gift. You just say, yes, God, I want that because of what Jesus did for me. For those of us who have believed in Jesus, God is our father. We have that relationship. We can never lose that relationship, but relationships take time. You gotta give it time. That has to be your priority in life to to listen to God by spending time in his word, to speak to God through prayer. You gotta set apart time in your daily schedule to be with God. That is your first priority in life. That's all of our first priorities in life. So I've given you item number one. The rest of the items on your list you have to set. These are unique to each of us and at different stages of our lives. But I'd like us to spend just a minute doing that together. Right now, as we end our our morning, as we end the sermon, I want to focus it, make it a little bit easier for you. We're just going to look at a short time frame just this summer. Here we are in June, so I want you to think about what your priorities are for the rest of the summer, and I'm going to keep your list really short, just three items, and I've already given you the first. Given you number one. So I want you to take this moment, and I want you to just think, what are going to be number two and number three on my list this summer? What are the priorities that you're going to focus on this summer? Where are you going to simplify? Is it one of your children that you need to give extra time to because they're really struggling? Is it some aspect of your marriage that you need to work on? Is it just getting away, getting some vacation? Is it getting into the gym and building a healthy habit in your life? What is going to be priority number two and priority number three in your life that's going to help you walk with the Lord? I encourage you to share it with your spouse or with a friend sometime today. Tell them, hey, well, you know number one. Here's number two and number three for me so they can hold you accountable and encourage you. This morning we get to end by applying this lesson in our lives right here. We're gonna focus this morning. We're gonna simplify by focusing on the most important thing, our relationship with God. We're gonna take communion. That's what communion is. It's a reminder. It's a moment to focus. Everyone here who is trusted in Jesus, you are all welcome to join us in communion, whether you're a member of our church or not. That doesn't matter. We're gonna spend this time in communion remembering, focusing on this one blessed, most important of all truth. We're gonna remind ourselves what it cost God to forgive us of sin. What was the cost for God to be able to call you his child? 
But what did it cost him for you to be able to call him father? Well, it cost him the life of his one true son, Jesus. Jesus had to die on the cross and rise from the dead so that we could be called the children of God. And so I want you to take this time, men, if you'll come forward as the men pass the elements and as Zach plays and and we just take this time to go to the Lord, I want to encourage you to take these moments and give thanks for a couple things. First, give thanks for the price that God paid to set you free from sin, the gift of his son. And then I want you to give thanks that God is at work right now, today, in your life, through your life, around your life, even when you don't see it. Let's take this time and give thanks to the Lord. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the price that you paid to set us free from sin. And we thank you that you gave your son Jesus to die in our place, taking our punishment upon himself, and that you raised him from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death so that we could live with you forever as your children. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you for the examples we look at Elijah when he was overwhelmed, when he was depressed and discouraged and afraid. We praise you and thank you that you did not punish him or rebuke him or condemn him, but that you showed up in kindness and in love and you encouraged him and helped him, Lord. And we cling to that and we rejoice in that. That you are a God who is kind, who is loving, who is gracious to us in our time of need. Father, we lift up any of our brothers and sisters here this morning who are overwhelmed, who are discouraged or depressed or anxious. We pray, Father, that they would find freedom in your word, that they would find strength in you. We pray that you would give them rest this summer, that you would remind them that you are at work in their lives and in their families and all around them, even when they can't see it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of simplicity, that you would focus them on what's most important in life. Father, we need you. Every hour we need you in our lives. You are our one hope. We pray that we would walk with you in the name of your Son. Amen.